If you were between the ages of four to the second grade, you were excused to kids' club. We have been walking through the book of Psalms this summer, not in order. It would take us way too long to cover 150 Psalms, um, probably three years, I guess. Um, we're, we've entitled our series Psalms, Songs for Life, because there's a reality in which we hold the book of Psalms and we hold it close to us uh, because there's reality to it. There's a reality to the book of Psalms that says that though men wrote it, God inspired it, and so there's a litany of emotions that come out of it. And because of that, because the emotions that can come out of it that were written by men but inspired by God were then free to understand that God can handle these kind of emotions. That whatever we would ever desire to express to God, he's big enough to take. So this morning, if you should be frustrated with God, he'll take it. If you're angry with God, you're free to express that. If you're disappointed... God can take it. It's the songs for real life that help equip us to deal with real life. And as we've walked through this, we've started every week with a quote. So let me quote Timothy Keller. I got this. Paul Smith gave this to me this week, by the way. So I give Paul credit for quoting Timothy Keller, who will then quote Athanasius. But here goes. Whatever your particular need or trouble from this book, the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you learn the way to remedy your ill. Athanasius goes on to argue that the Psalms show us how to praise God, how to repent for sins, how to be thankful, and in each case giving, gives us the fitting words to do so. Tim Keller. Now we've walked through a litany of Psalms and they've given us words for a lot of things. And this morning we're walking into Psalm 51 which will give us the words for confession. Now, if this happens to be your first Sunday here, and you happen to get confession for sin on your first Sunday, this isn't our normal place, but we do teach the whole counsel of God's word. And so we're going to walk into confession of sin out of Psalm 51. Let me read it to you. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. And let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence 
and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver from blood guiltiness, O God, and deliver, O God, of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. As David pens this psalm, he gives us the words of confession. He gives us words that can become our own pattern for confession. And we find when studying this, he gives us the context. He tells us, he writes this when Nathan the prophet went to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. And we'll talk about that as we push through this. Because David was a sinner. And David was a guilty sinner. And that actually becomes helpful and instructive for us to, to catch on to. Because it's possible that you might be here this morning and think that you are a sinner. And indeed you are. But you might think you were so bad a sinner that God couldn't forgive you. That God might not, might not be able to overcome your sin. So let's take consideration to David's life. Even if you were to pick up two chapters, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you would quickly find from this short story that David really quickly breaks most of the moral code of the Ten Commandments. See, this story starts with David walking around on a rooftop. We can discuss while he's there, but happens to see a naked woman laying on a roof. That was that generation's view of pornography. Despicable then, despicable now. Sin then, then as it is now, David lusts after another woman. In so doing, he covets another man's wife, breaking the 10th commandment. Having desired her, he sleeps with her, breaking the 7th commandment. And I'm guessing somewhere in there, he misleads, lies to Bathsheba's husband, the army, another, any number of other people, inevitably bearing false witness and breaking the ninth commandment. In due process, David sends her husband Uriah the Hittite into battle, ultimately has him killed, thus murdering him, breaking the sixth commandment. Any way you look at this, David breaks nearly every aspect of the moral code given in the Ten Commandments. And the craziest part of the whole story is David doesn't even confess sin until he's called out for it. Until Nathan confronts him, David is so blind in his own desire and want that he's totally unaware of what he's doing until his buddy Nathan calls him out to his face. David, a man after God's own heart, a vile and wicked sinner, just like us. Now where David becomes instructive for us is, I'm guessing, there are not too many of us in here who have gone that far into breaking the Ten Commandments. I'm not guessing, or I'm guessing there aren't too many of us that have gone so far to commit adultery and murder and all these other things. 
certainly were guilty of a lot of it. But David was a sinner among sinners. And God rightly forgave him and gave him these words to give to us that when we stumble, when we struggle with sin, and we don't know what to say, or we wonder what God's response might be, David pins these words, then we might have them. And he gives us at least five different aspects of confession and restoration. They're going to be well worth our attention this morning. I call them aspects because they're not really steps. It's not like there's a linear process where you go one to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. It's not quite like a recipe list. But there are five aspects that are important and that lead us to confession and ultimately to restoration. So let's start in verse 1 when David says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And David begins by asking for forgiveness. He begins by asking God to have mercy on him. He says, God, give me what I don't deserve. And in so doing, he rightly relates himself to God. David acknowledges immediately that God is a right and a righteous judge and that he's a rule breaker. He rightly positions himself to God, and that's got to be the first aspect for right confession for us. You have to rightly relate yourself to God to understand who he is and who you are. The ultimate perfect being and very broken fallen creatures. Lest you think I'm looking at any of you individually, try spending a week trying to preach confession to sin. Don't think I didn't get raked this week. Just raked. Every one of us is a sinner. This is good for all of us. The first thing you have to do is rightly relate yourself to God. And David does so when he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Give me what I don't deserve. And you see David's positioning here when he refers to God as Elohim, a general name of God, not a personal name of God. He distanced himself. And isn't that exactly what we do when we sin? We feel so distant from God that we wouldn't even be able to call him daddy. Oh, general God, please forgive me of my sin. That's where we all sit. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, and David pins his forgiveness, being rightly related to God, he pins his forgiveness, not on his ability to do right, but on God's great character. According to your steadfast love, Hebrew word has said, my favorite word in Hebrew, the idea that a covenant-keeping God commits himself to a covenant-breaking people. That an eternal God will love you knowing you'll blow it a lot. This is God's character according to David. He pleads to God based on your character. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Picking three different phrases, using three different verbs and three different nouns, all to get to this idea of God. Forgive me for what I've done. I plead with you. 
And that's what David does. He rightly relates himself to God. And to confess sin, God has to be God. And you have to be lacking. It's a place of humiliation for us to cry out. For David to cry out, be merciful to me. To acknowledge he is the king, he is the master, he is the sustainer, he is the perfect one. And I'm the offender. And I am in need. And David rightly relates himself to God. And in verse 3, he takes the next step. He confesses sin. David says, For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. David acknowledges, I know what I've done wrong. And he owns it. He knows what he did. And on some aspect of this, I actually want David to write a litany of sin. But you know, the reality in David's life, we don't even know everything that happened along that whole line. We don't know every person he lied to about it. We don't know every person he misled. We don't know what he, what he stole from other people's dignity, what he stole from other people's honor. We don't know what all he's guilty of. So if David actually pins that all out, we might make this psalm about that and not about our need. David acknowledges he's wrong. He owns it and says, my sin is ever before me. And that's true a lot of times. It was true for David. That sometimes we might see God asking for forgiveness. And spiritually, God could forgive us. He could even offer us restoration. But there are going to be some physical, some worldly aspects of our sin we're still going to pay for. And you see that in David's life. Sin was ever before David because he had to look at a general in the eyes whom he clearly lied to and told the general, hey, when you get up, I want you to attack this city. And I want you to go forward to the front spot. And then I want Uriah the Hittite to be up front. And then right when the battle gets the worst, I want everyone to back up. And I want to make sure that man dies. See, that general knew exactly what happened. And you got to appreciate when this general comes back, knowing that they advanced this guy forward, had him slaughtered intentionally, and David's now shacked up with his wife. Don't you think that's going to affect his relationship with his army? I mean, these guys weren't dumb. And when David starts having more sons with this gal, they'd all get it. David's sin was before him. Though God might actually forgive him and does, he still had to pay the consequences for it. And that's true for a lot of us and a lot of our sin. Sometimes, though God will forgive us, we'll still pay consequences. Our sin will ever be before us. And confessing to God, David names his sin... And in confessing to God, David also acknowledges who he sins against. And this is so crucial for us to get. Against you and you only. Did David sin against Bathsheba? Absolutely he did. Did David sin against the nation of Israel? Absolutely he did. Did David sin against Uriah the Hittite? Unbelievably, he did. 
But David cued into this idea that's so crucial for us to understand about sin. David sinned against God. All sin is against God. And though it's helpful and it's right for us to pursue our neighbors, to pursue those we sin against, to rightly confess to them, if the only amends we actually make are to the people we walk close to, we miss the reality that it's God who's the most offended by our sin. See, as we walk through this passage, there are true truths that are huge. One, our sin is so much bigger and so much dirtier and so much worse than we've ever dreamed of. And his grace is way more sufficient than all of it. David sinned against God. And we don't always make that connection. We don't always realize when we sin against a brother or a sister or a spouse or a neighbor that we've offended God. In James 2.10, James writes this, Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So whether you've stolen grenades or cookies, whether you sold drugs or sold somebody else's personality, whatever you've done, understand according to this scripture that all sin is bad. All sin leads you astray. All sin offends a holy God. So even in your happy, goody, two-shoes-ness where you don't blow it very much, know that when you lie, the little whitest lie that you don't think is bad, God's really offended by. In a very real way. And we miss that reality. And because we miss that reality, we stop and we don't bring ourselves to Psalm 51 to rightly confess it. To make ourselves right with God. Eugene Merrill, an Old Testament professor from Dallas, says this about Psalms. He says, once we understand that no sin is against a human being alone, and that all sin is transgression against God, we will no longer treat it so lightly. Once we, have, once we recognize that sin is not just about people, it's about God, we don't treat sin as lightly. Because when we start taking the steps to realize that sin is against an almighty God, he's the one we got to confess to, it changes things. Sin becomes a bigger deal. I used to joke with college students in Memphis that if we lived in an Old Testament system, and sometimes I wish we did, and when you sin, you had to get a, a ram and bring it up and look him in the eyes and call it your sin and then slaughter it, we'd be a whole lot more aware of our sin. But when we live in a world where we just kind of look up and go, forgive me, God, and keep moving, we minimize it. We make it nothing, and we keep running. We miss this reality that our sin offends God, and we don't own it to him, and we don't confess it to him. And it's such an important aspect of confession that we recognize, we own that what we do is wrong, and we own that God is the one we've offended. And he's always faithful to forgive us. 1 John 1.9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God is a good God. 
And even though we offend him on a daily basis, dare I say an hourly, even minutely basis, he's good and he's gracious. And though our sin might be worse than we think, his grace is bigger. It's bigger still. And so he offers us forgiveness. David in verse 5 gets to the depths of his sinfulness saying this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From conception, David knew he was a sinner. It's, it's a statement of the depth of the woundedness of his personhood, something that's just as true of all of us. I sin because I'm a sinner. That's absolutely my choice. I walk face first into it most of the time. But at the depths of our being, we still choose sin. And David owned that. And to contrast that, this is what David says in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And though he was born into sin, the Lord desires truth from him. The Lord desires honesty from him. So he doesn't have to hide from God. God understands who he created. God understands who you are. He understands your weaknesses. He understands where you're prone to fall. He is sympathetic. And God desires truth from you. He desires honesty from you. A couple of years ago, I read a book by a professor named Greg Ten Elsoff. Elshoff. I read a book called I Told Me So. It's a fascinating read, and I'd commend it to you. He writes this book called I Told Me So, and the book is all about how we lie to ourselves. The lies that we choose to believe that we walk face first into and just hold on to. It's all about self-deception. And it's crazy convicting. Because you walk through chapters and go, ooh, I do that too. Ooh, me. Ooh, me. Still me. God desires truth. As we walk through a psalm of confession, there's a reality that guilt, that sin is bigger than we've ever thought. And God knows about it. He knows you so well, knows what you're capable of, knows what you've done, and his grace is more than sufficient to carry it. David acknowledges who he is before God and he confesses his sin. In verse 7, he brings on another aspect, the cleansing. Verse 7, he says this, he says, Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. You don't know what hyssop is. You might think it's soap. You get the idea of God washing you, but the picture is way, way better. You find this hyssop, it's a kind of marjoram plant. I have a picture of it. This is a hyssop bush, in case you've ever wondered. If you've got one of these in your yard, you probably don't. They grow in Syria and Egypt. It's kind of marjoram plant, it's got long, hairy branches. Uh, it was used in the Old Testament kind of like a paintbrush. You'd tie a bunch of these guys together with a cord, and then you'd beat stuff with it to paint things. You find it multiple times in the Bible. You find it used with blood to purify the altar for sacrifice. You find it's a hyssop branch that's used when the Israelites paint blood over the door frames of their homes so the angel of the Lord will pass over them. And when you start to see the function of a hyssop dipped in blood for the purification of something, you start to understand David's picture of being cleansed with hyssop. And it's the same for us. 
that David would say, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He has some understanding that there's blood involved that will cover him. It's blood that will make him clean. It's blood that will wash him. And it's blood that will make him whiter than snow. And church, it's the same for us. It's not the blood of rams or sheep. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we're a church. We're people who gather together to celebrate that what Jesus Christ did at the cross is sufficient for all of our sin. That's why we have communion. We celebrate that what he did at the cross was sufficient for all of our sin. Friends, if you're here and you've never taken that step to believe that, to to claim that kind of faith that Christ is sufficient to cover your sin, man, today's a great day to believe in him. To accept this purging with hyssop that only his son could provide in a real way. That's permanent. That's washing. And that makes you white like snow. Because watch this. Because as he's purged with hyssop, and as he's cleansed, and as he's washed, look at the rejuvenation that happens. Look at the restoration that starts to happen. In verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. This washing with blood, this cleansing, this whitening starts to rebuild joy and gladness and hope within him. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. And that's what he does. He washes us and he makes us clean. And we look at these different aspects of confession. You acknowledge who God is. You ask for forgiveness. You ask for cleansing. And then we come to this fourth aspect of restoration. And in verse 10, this is what we have. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And if you had the grace to know who Keith Green is, you'll be singing this all day long. Because I have all week. And if I had a singing voice, I'd sing to you now. But I offer you grace by not. (laughs) Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take your ho- not your Holy Spirit from me. When David prays this, he asks God to do a unique thing for him, to create in him a clean heart, to renew his spirit, to not remove his presence, and to not take away the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, we have to appreciate that the administration of grace that David lived under is radically different than what we do. Because where God in the Old Testament might not or might remove his presence, where God in the Old Testament might remove his spirit, as a New Testament believer in Jesus Christ, all of these things have happened for you in Jesus Christ. In him, that though all of us are sin, have sinned, Because of his forgiveness, he's created a new heart within us. He took out our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He placed his Holy Spirit to forever dwell within us so that he doesn't leave. His Spirit doesn't depart from us. 
And this is the part where we have to take truth as truth. As we've defined faith, we've done it a couple of times. Faith is taking God at his word and living like it's true. If you've walked into sin and you come into this part of the psalm and God feels so far away, you have to take it by faith. He's not departed from you. Jesus is so near to you, so very near. But this part of restoration is so crucial for us to get to spiritually. That when we confess sin, when we acknowledge that we're wrong and we ask God to forgive us and to provide us cleansing, this step of restoration is so key for us. It's like when a father disciplines his son and hugs him in the end and holds him tight and says, boy, I love you so much. It's that step when a spouse has had a struggle or a fight and the end of it, there's a warm, affirming hug that says that everything's okay. Everything's restored. Everything's better. Everything's fine. This is what restoration looks like. And though everyone here is a sinner in Jesus Christ, he's hugged all of us in restoration. We've been cleansed, we've been purified, and in Christ we've been restored. And in verse 13, when we sin and we're forgiven, we're taken back to that first time we knew his grace. All of our sins are forgiven and we're rightly related to our Father. And if I was a singer, I would again sing to you my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. Not in part, but the whole. Nailed to the cross. We're cleansed, we're purified, we've been restored, and we know his grace. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The Father holds you like a daddy who's disciplined a child in restoration. And we see this repentance and this restoration come full circle the way it does in Jesus Christ when all of our failures are redeemed and though you've been restored, here comes redemption. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Ponder that for just a moment. The next time you fall face first into sin, God forgives you, he cleanses you, he restores you. David then says, I will go to transgressors and I will teach them about you. What does that really look like? See, church, this is good evangelism right here. This is the church living out evangelism in a great way. That you would engage somebody and lead with, hey, I'm a sinner and I blow it all the time. Let me show you where I found forgiveness. So that our leading comment isn't, hey, sinner, you're a sinner. Acknowledge you're a sinner. Let's deal with your sin. But rather, David's push here is to acknowledge he is a sinner. I will teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will return to you. 
Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David acknowledges that who God is, that God will work through him. And this is redemption from our sin when it comes full circle, when we've totally blown it and God wants to redeem that part of our sin and use it for his glory when we'll verbalize that we've blown it, when we confess what he's done in forgiving us and it comes to full redemption when we can broadcast that and say God is faithful and he's good. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, when Paul says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And church, look at that for a moment. Hold that for just a minute. Because this is what makes us the church. When we stop acting like we've got it all together, when we stop acting like we're all perfect people, showing up to worship in a perfect God, when the reality is we're all broken, hurting, needy people, showing up to worship a holy God. Paul's teaching point to us So we'd be fine with our weaknesses. That's the church. Then we walk in together, we join each other as hurting, broken people. Not have to act like we've got it all together. Not having to act like we've nailed it all. This is that part where I should fill the sermon with stories and testimonies of how on paper my vacation was great. But the reality of it was I was worn out. I was tired. I had no patience with my children. I got very grumpy a couple of times. In anger, I laid in bed holding children who were wiggling, going, sleep, dang it, sleep. That's where we've all been. There's not one of us is perfect. So we don't have to act like it anymore. This is the church being the church. This is the full redemption of sin. And we have to appreciate that in Jesus Christ. That what David puts before us in Psalm 51 is not just that we would acknowledge rightly who God is and who we are, though that's absolutely true. God desires to do far more than us just to show up and ask for forgiveness. But that's absolutely what we need to do. When God wants to do his full work of confession and repentance, and redemption. He wants you to know that you're clean in Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And he wants to bring that to full redemption by using you to declare what he's done with your sin. So we're free to engage the world with, you know, I blow it all the time. I'm way worse than you know. Way worse than you know. 
had a seminary professor a couple of times would say, if my church knew the vilest parts of my thinking, there's not a one of them would be my friend. Guys, that's so true of me. And if we're really honest, that's so true of all of us. It's true of all of us. But in Jesus Christ, we're joined together as a band of people who are broken, wounded, and hurting, who've been forgiven, who can boldly proclaim to the world of who Christ is and what he did on the cross. And David ends in 18 and 19, do good to Zion in your good pleasures. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then the bulls will be offered on your altar. He, he could ends this with an exhortation, not to us, but to God, that God would take pleasure in us, that God would continue to be faithful to us, that it might bring about faithful responses from us. As we've walked through Psalm 51, there are two truths that are bigger than we think. One of them, we sin, and it's way bigger and way worse than we think. And two, his grace is way bigger and way more gracious than we think. So let's take the step of honesty. Let's own it. Let's confess it to our brothers and sisters. Let's confess it to a holy God. And let's go into the world and proclaim what he's done with our sin, how he's been gracious and faithful, how he's cleaned us, how he's restored us, and that in Christ we can proclaim our sin because he's redeemed us. And as you walk in faith, remember Psalm 51, for all the times that you stumble and sin, and holding close that we be reminded of his grace. While studying this week, I was, um, Martin Luther said of this psalm, that it's his favorite. It's the psalm that holds closest to him. It's the psalm that, that he, uh, I should have written it down. It's the psalm that he identifies with the most. Athanasius said, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you don't know what to do, go to this psalm because you're guilty of something. Go to this psalm and be reminded of his grace, his restoration, his redemption, and then rest in his sleep. I thought that was beautiful. Next week we'll be in Psalm 63. Let's pray. Father, gracious and merciful Father, there's a bunch of people in this room who sin. All of us. It's all vile, it's all dirty, it's all ugly. All of it displeases you. Father, you've asked us to confess sin to you. That we'd acknowledge the times that we trespass against you. That just like we would with a, a wife or a husband or a dear friend, God, we should own up the times, own up to the times, God, when we might have offended you. Now, God, we don't always see it. You're not passive aggressive like the people around us who treat us differently when we sin against them. But God, the sin is all the real against you. So Father, we confess to you that we've blown it. That our lives fall, fall short of the glory of God. Father, forgive us for our sin. 
cleanse us from our sin. Father, that indeed we'd be made whiter than snow. Purge us with hyssop, that we'd be covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, that in him we have forgiveness and we have restoration. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Father, that we'd understand that because of your Son, the warm hug of restoration is ours. And Father, having accomplished all these things in us, bring our sin to full redemption by giving us the boldness to proclaim that we are weak and that we blow it. And that because of your forgiveness, we're redeemed. Jesus, we are so thankful for your work at the cross. It's in you we put our hope. It's in you we put our trust. And it's so sweet to trust in you. Amen.